Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Away we go. Here we are with episode 30 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I'm your host, Eric Degatti, along with my buddy and colleague, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to the show in episode 30. How you doing, buddy? It's good to see you. How's everything going? Uh, we're doing good. We, we, we continue our lucky streak 30 episodes in. We keep getting awesome, awesome guests. I keep plugging away on my wish list. And uh, and, and this woman is, is certainly on that list. It's Dr. Kathy Dooley. And if you're not uh, familiar with, with Dr. Dooley, she's a chiropractor by trade who has practice in, in both Midtown Manhattan and then out in Denver and Boulder, Colorado, uh, where she's talking to us from today. Uh, she's also an anatomy instructor at two New York City medical schools, which are Albert Einstein College of Medicine and the Wild Cornell Medical College. Uh, she's also an adjunct instructor at uh, New York University's College of Dentistry and a business professor for St. George's Universal University Medical School in Grenada, West Indies. She's kind of all over the globe when, when she's out there. Um, and she's also the founder of the Immaculate Dissection. And that's how I came across Kathy and her work. It's an unbelievable course kind of teaching you about anatomy and what it really does and, and, and what it looks like in, in, in real life. And then she's also a lead instructor for the seminar series, Neurokinetic Therapy uh, and for Somatic Senses Education. Um, she writes for her own website, which is Dr. Dooley Noted. Uh, and we will put links to all this up on uh, in the show notes. And she's also a former reviewer for the scientific journal, Clinical Anatomy. And so we are thrilled to have you as our guest, Dr. Kathy Dooley. Wow, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So uh, you're you're a chiropractor by trade, and and obviously when people think about chiropractors, you know that they think of like cracking backs, right? And so <laughs> you've obviously kind of transcended that uh, stereotype <laughs> and created a powerful and unique niche and brand uh, with what you're doing. What are some of the influences that kind of led you on that path and kind of made you this uh, anatomy goddess, so to speak? Oh, that's very nice and kind of you. Uh, I think that. When I was a trimester one student in chiropractic school, that's uh, it, when it started to happen that I wanted to be a rehabilitative chiropractor. I was exposed to the amazing Craig Liebenson, who is also uh, a very unorthodox chiropractor in the sense of the stereotypical chiropractor of um, what we call the fly in seven, just cracking joints and and moving on. He he really looks at things very deeply and analytically, and I was exposed to him very early on. I got so lucky. Uh, with a, a club called Motion Palpation Institute in, in chiropractic school. And, and they were very big on uh, Dr. Liebenson in his book, Rehab of the Spine. And in his book, uh, you know, huge tome, he you know, talks about how important it is to rehabilitate human movement. It's not enough just to adjust. And that, I got bit with that bug and, and then got bit with the anatomy bug as I was tutoring that class in chiropractic school. So, I mean, Liebenson is just a guy that I feel like every time that guy speaks, I'm just like, I'm a moron. And this, this guy knows <laughs> more than uh, I could ever imagine to. That guy is just on another level. I actually first learned about his work, um, you know, back in the the early days of listening to Gray Cook. And, you know, early on, there were these sort of early adopters of the FMS. And and that's where I first heard of uh, his name. But, um, yeah, talk about someone great to learn from. and uh, And I'm sure, you know. I'm sure there's several people that think of you in the same fashion. So, um, which is, which is pretty imagine. remarkable, but you know, a big part of your focus is on human anatomy. And, um, what is the biggest thing that they didn't teach, you know, people in general, uh, about the anatomy and, and what they really should have focused on? Because I feel like there was definitely some things missed. Oh, I have to admit that I was part of that. I think in the beginning, uh, when I was going through, I, I, you have to take a ton of anatomy in chiropractic school. And I wasn't bitten with the anatomy bug initially. I found it to be enormously overwhelming. 
And I think it's because of the red tape of the way that anatomy is taught, origin, insertion, innervation, and blood supply. And, and you look at, I remember opening up Netter for the first time. I'll never forget it. It was 2004, January, 2004. I had just started chiropractic school. I opened up Frank Netter's Atlas. I think it was, what was that version three or something at that point? And I, the skull was one of the first things you see. And I was like, I can't learn all that. This is, uh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and it's amazing how wrong that is, but it, it's such an overwhelming topic that I think that it's hard to break it down simply in a very small amount of time. And the, the curriculum requirements to pass board examinations makes it really, really challenging for a lot of disciplines to be able to provide a, a very thorough anatomy education. There's always the the part two, whether I teach at med schools, dental schools, physical therapeutics, physical therapeutics. All, I've taught so many different types of schools, probably at least 13 or 14 at this point. With each discipline, they are, their hands are tied as far as the amount of anatomy they can integrate that's functional and assessment driven because they have to pass a board exam in order to be able to even call themselves a chiropractor or a physical therapist or a massage therapist. So their hands are really, really tied. And then I get them later in continuing ed when they're now applying anatomy in an assessment process. And that's when I think I can really teach them anatomy because they now can receive it in a way that really applies to the patient or to the client. So where our world is when it comes to fitness, you know, it's been so parts dominated almost to the extent where you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about like how most people are exposed to anatomy, right? They go into a gym and there's literally like a color coded picture of anatomy that that's highlighted of this is the muscle part you're working. If you use this machine, um, because of that, the influences of bodybuilding and physical therapy and, and kind of the history of it, but from a, a functional anatomy standpoint and how things actually work, where does that approach go wrong? Um, this is a great question. I think it starts with not enough physics and not enough biomechanics. Like I'll say to my students, um, hey, what does the tensor fascia lata do? And they say, oh, it flexes the hip and abducts the hip and internally rotates the hip and extends the knee. And I said, okay, um, when I'm doing this particular action in front of you, which one is it doing first and most? And the entire room it could be 150 people, it could be 800 people, it could be 10 people. They freeze and can't answer because we don't apply a lot of the physics concepts, uh, biomechanical concepts to our, our teaching of functional anatomy. So I'll say, look, you know, due to link tension curve, you can't do all those actions of flexion, abduction, internal rotation, knee extension. You can't do all those things at once. You have to be elongated on other planes and then you can fire on a plane due to that link tension curve, due to the building of tension. And, and they're like, oh, I never really thought about it like that. So those charts are actually really incorrect. You know, they're, they're really, I should say incomplete. They're incomplete because, you know, when you're doing like, let's say a squat or a deadlift, you are activating the whole system. It's a compound movement. And so to, to put people into this box of, I'm going to work my hamstrings by doing a deadlift and I'm, I, I'm going to stretch my hamstrings before I deadlift. I'm like, okay, well, fine. You understand that you do stretch the hamstrings during a deadlift. You know, on, on the descent, you stretch them at the hip and on the ascent, you'll stretch them at the knee. And they're like, I never thought of it that way. And I'm like, well, that's because you, functional anatomy is not the way that we usually educate people when it comes to human movement. Now, is it because so, we uh, put each of these, I'm sorry, Mike, but is it because we put these parts in silos and not appreciate the the interrelationships they have with the other parts and where you have certain muscles like, you know, the abdominals and the hip flexors where sometimes they work concurrently and, and they're working uh, together and other parts they're working against each other. And mm -hmm. so it's not as simple as, is, is pointing to that and say, all right, I need to, I need to stronger that part, right. To do what I do for this activity. So I'm going to do this exercise because it also works that part. Right. Yes. I, I had a patient yesterday that you know, he's a hot, low back patient, right? He's about to, to get discectomy and I can't talk him out of it because he's a new patient and he's already scheduled. So here it is. But I had him in all fours and I had him knees under hips, hands, you know, under shoulders, neck, long, chin, back, chest, wide ribs, down hips, even the whole spinal cues of neutrality. And I asked him to pick his knees up off the ground and he could do it without pain. He was very excited. And he goes, what should I be thinking about in this? Should I be tighten my abs and I go, your abs are, are, they're on. Your abs have to fire a millisecond before you move any limbs. So the mo moment you picked those knees up off the ground, they were firing. It was such a foreign concept to him 
because bracing to him, like he felt like he had to brace in order to engage. And this is just a big part of the problem. And, and, and we, you know, I think that some of us, some of we professionals perpetuate that. We're like, make sure your abs are on or make sure let's work your lats and glutes. And, and we use this language. I think that it really doesn't serve the client as much as we think that it does. And it creates um, a misconception that some of the things that they do in their life aren't working the parts that they are indeed working. Yeah. When people ask me, what does this work? I just say, yes. <laughs> what does this That's work? Yes. An accurate it answer. It's the most accurate <laughs> well, answer. So I know, right? So I do have a uh, a biomechanics question for you because um, you know I've been in this this industry a long time, and and I I came in a very very different way. I, I I was a sociology major. I learned early on about kind of movement patterns and and adopted the sort of the FMS um, viewpoint, if you will. And then over the last, I would say over the last probably five to eight years, there's been this sort of big swing in talking about biomechanics. Now, um, you know, I, I think just like anything, we can go down rabbit holes, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen a lot of people in the world of physical therapy and chiropractic using the idea of, you know, a biomechanics understanding, like you're saying, because if you guys are doing any type of testing and assessments, you guys really need to be able to target things a little bit more thoroughly. And I would actually say the same thing in the world of bodybuilding, because what we're seeing is a trend now in the world of bodybuilding is, well, if you want to hit the lat at this angle and hit this part of the lat, you have to do this movement and this and that. And which is not a bad thing necessarily in the world of, of bodybuilding when you're looking to gain symmetry and you're trying to put on size. But I think what happens is people take these two ends of the spectrum, they're not ends of the spectrum, but we've got the bodybuilding viewpoint and a lot of the stuff that's done with, uh, you know, just biomechanics and treatment. And then we have people that are just doing pull-ups and push-ups. And I think what's happening is they're getting really confused because they're hearing like, well, I should be feeling this. And should I be targeting this part of this muscle? And, you know, I, I feel like in, in some way, like biomechanics are really important, but in some ways, like we, it's easy to overthink it because it's like, well, you know, someone's doing a deep squat. Well, what muscles am I working when I'm doing this deep squat? It's like, you're just squatting. Like, as long as it looks good and it flies right and you're healthy, you're getting stronger. I feel like we're doing pretty good. Do you think in a way biomechanics has actually confused a lot of people? And when it comes to true function? I think that biomechanics are, you know, you can't really think about biomechanics in a way that is all inclusive in a big way. So if you're trying to look at, and I'm guilty of this, when I have to teach the way that the sternoclavicular joint moves, I have to teach about the biomechanics of how those things move and what moves the joint. And I think biomechanics are really helpful to break down a region when you're trying to explain how a region kind of moves, but biomechanics are not the easiest way to break down a compound movement like a squat. It, it, it's just, and people's body, you have to factor in a lot of things. You have to factor in a lot of anatomy and how it's different in every person when you do that. So I think that when it comes to the misfires, especially in a clinical setting for me, it's that I was taught that I won't get paid for a cervical problem if I if I treat the thoracic spine. <laughs> so part of me is always like, wait a minute, this, this really, really sucks. I, I think that we break things down too narrow with biomechanics. And then we also don't do these all-inclusive functional anatomy assessments. I mean, with the exception of you folks, because of course you're F FMS and SFMA. And uh, I think that there, there's big misses in, in going starting local but then going global and, and seeing those two things as extremely valuable and mutually enhancing rather than the same entity so I, I always like to look at the glass half full one of the upsides of being old and doing this a really long time is you see everything recirculate uh so when i started <laughs> off in the late 90s um it was just before the functional quote-unquote functional movement had gotten really big um, and I was blessed enough to learn from people like Tom Purvis, who was really big at the time. And I, I'm grateful for that, having that exposure. And unfortunately, Tom became kind of the whipping boy for the functional crowd because it went from, no, he's talking about all these biomechanical things and learning things like shunt and spurt and lever arms and, and mm -hmm. moment arms and learning about, you know, length tension relationships. And, and that five pounds is not five pounds, depending on where it is in terms of the relationship and what tension and stressors it's putting on those muscles and joints. And and that kind of got pushed to the side because everybody said, well, that's, you know, we're not bodybuilders. We're going to go, you know, we're going to get BOSU balls and body blades and, and, and stability balls. And we're going to be quote unquote functional and just kind of replaced machines with a bunch of circus tricks. And so 
um, where where that kind of got off stray. And then that, I think, translated into what we see a lot in rehab. <clears throat> and, you know, balance training is I'm going to, you know, stand you on an Airx pad for 30 seconds and toss a tennis ball at you, right? <laughs> um, and so um, let's talk about rehab. And first of all, can we really have an isolated injury to your point before? I think this is really... I feel like this is highly improbable. Like I'll give an example. My patient, this is what makes it hard for me to be. I'm not in networks, the chiropractor, because I'm so frustrated because if somebody came to me with an elbow injury, I'm expected to treat their elbow and only their elbow and get paid. And so I was just like, I got so tired of this. I was like, I'm not playing this game. I'm not playing the, the insurance game of assumption that you get injured in one spot and that's where you're injured. I think this is really tough because the body, it's well-documented in research that if you are injured, that you will build a poor, well, you'll build a compensatory strategy around said injury in order to survive and then hopefully eventually thrive. And you will build this stability motor control program around this. And people build poor compensatory strategies to get them through the moment, but it was very useful in that moment, but they won't necessarily let go of that moment. And that poor compensatory strategy doesn't just get isolated to one area. It is... Like if you were to hurt your ankle, you don't just get hurt at your ankle. You know, it's going to change, you know, the strategy of how you work around that problem at the ankle throughout your entire system. It can lead from right foot all the way to the opposite arm that moves with it in gait. So it's, it's really hard for me to box in injury. Although I think that that whole start local, go global thing is, is a big part of my, my nomenclature. Uh, but I, no, I don't think that we can get, I think we can have an injurious process in, in a regionalized place, but you can expect that there's a compensatory strategy built around that for uh, efficiency that was first acute and then becomes a chronic situation that may be more global. So, and it comes to those potential secondary issues and compensations, is, is that kind of more of an issue of time and compensation or rather just the mechanism of injury? What do you think? I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think the the mechanism of injury is so genius. We really poo poo it a lot uh, in rehab, and and I think that you know progressive people like you and Mike are are easier to convince of this. But I think injury is just beautiful. I think Stu McGill calls it the gift of injury, which I love. Uh, there's this beautiful mechanism of, of injury, uh, and some compensation strategies are actually not so pathological to the patient, are they? Um, but I think that the, the part that I find so fascinating about clinical practice is the fact that the poor compensatory strategies become something that, that really is bigger. And I think that's what I built my entire career around is looking at not just compensation strategies, but poor compensation strategies. And that's the trick, right? Is when yeah. is, what's the fine line between a compensation and a positive adaptation? Right. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of the, the mistakes get made. And, and we get a lot of the arrows as being, FM, you know, quote unquote, FMS guys being connected with that and saying, okay, well, we're just looking for problems that aren't there. We're trying to be these corrective exercise kind of people. And it's, it's like, nah, you know, that's, they're not getting the point. And there's certain things, there's certain uh, asymmetries that we actually want. I work with a lot of baseball players. They, if they, their asymmetries is maybe what makes them great. The fact that they have, greater spiral bone density in their throwing all upper, uh, you know, arm, their humerus mm -hmm. on their throwing arm. That's a positive adaptation and compensation yes. that, that we're, we don't want to discourage just so oh. for the sake of symmetry, for the sake of this doesn't match my chart or scoring criteria. So mm -hmm. I think that that's also something that needs to be understood that we, we had this wave kind of talking about the waves in our industry. We had this wave of, okay, corrective exercise. And if I see, you know, Mike talks about in our course, you know, if you see somebody's knee wobble, you know, uh, a quarter inch in that you're calling the ambulance, like we have to understand <laughs> that there's, there's, there's certain things that are acceptable and there's certain things that are even desirable when we look at the unique movement qualities and, and compensations that we may see. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I, I heard, uh, I think in my CKFMS uh, with, with Brett Jones and Craig Cook, uh, Grace said the perfect score in FMS is not 21, it's 14. It's trying to get people general symmetry, right? So they don't have an, an increased tendency towards poor compensation. And, and that their sport's going to create some asymmetries that make them an, an elite athlete. I, I was working with an elite rower yesterday, and he's very, very frustrated. 
and we were running, you know, some of his screens, like some of the SFMA screens. And, and we saw this really big disparity that didn't fit his sport. And I brought this to his attention. He was very aware of it. And we started talking about the fact that all of his doctors before me were focusing on this disc herniation that was in his back. That is the most common disc herniation to happen in rowers. It's a T5, T6 bulge because they're always rowing to one direction. But his his provocation was actually, I told him, I put him through you know, the, the MSR breakout for SFMA or rotational breakout for those that are new to SFMA. And I, I showed him that the problem was actually upstream. That it was that he has a, an adaptation that's poor because, and that's why he was not being effective as a rower, and also why I think he developed an injurious process around the problem. And he was like, it's, you know, people just kept doing epidurals into the same spot, you know, and I'm like, you can't, and he was like, most of my friends have the same imaging. I'm like, that's my point. Like, you can't, you can't take an adaptation that's typical for a rower, you know, and, and think that's the problem. It, it's it's not true. They're going to change their spine. They're going to change their their rotation because they're always rotating to one direction in the boat. But it's it's like a golfer trying to switch arms. Like you're going to ask them to golf the other direction. You know, you're you're going to provide them with a general symmetry where they're they're not, you know, at a going to adapt poorly and then and compensate. And then you want some type of resiliency in the patient, but you don't want perfect symmetry. I can tell you as an anatomist, I've dissected 2,700 people bilaterally. None of us are the same and none of us are generally symmetrical or sorry, big, uh, have big asymmetries, but we do have, you know, general asymmetries. And that's what we're going for is like, we, we don't need perfect symmetry. And, and I think that is a, uh, something my, my patients, I, I really tout to them. I'm like, I don't need you to be perfectly symmetrical. I need you to be generally symmetrical. And, and I don't want you to, to compensate too poorly to where we could put excessive stresses on parts that don't fit your sport or don't fit your lifestyle or don't fit your workouts. Before you jump in, Mike, I just want to hammer that point home to people who are listening is that when we talk about symmetry, most of the research shows you need to have symmetry within reason. Right. And it's once you get to a certain tipping point, I know NAPIC did some research, I think it was on hip extension, that mm -hmm. once you get about a 10, it's usually most of the research shows anywhere between 10 to 15% difference one side versus the other. That's when it gets from that, that kind of hockey stick of a bell curve jumps up of where that's where we start to see significant issues that underneath that, it's not really anything to worry about. And I, I wish that people would, I wish all coaches, all therapists would really just start to talk about that because if I have to talk someone off the ledge of their MRI one more time, I feel like 70% of my career is people getting hurt, going to get imaging, and then coming to me with all these images that has shown in research over and over that the vast majority of humans are going to have L4, L5, L5, S1 disc changes because we're bipeds or that a right-handed athlete is going to develop you know, particular tendencies towards their right shoulder. And, and, and the same thing with meniscus, same thing with ACL. And I, I, I feel like most of my job is just talking people off a ledge that's actually not even peer supported anymore. And I'm just like, why, why are we doing this to our patients, our friends, our, our ourselves? Why, why do we make everything about these weird, you know, static ideas that don't even check out? And so the, the idea of general symmetry, I'm, I, I think that that is a, a really great thing to, to promote to patients and clients. And we have to do it as colleagues. We have to start, you know, talking more and more about that. And I think that's what's so great about FMS um, and SF, SFMA, uh, what, what Gray and Brett and, and the rest of the crew, what you folks do is, is that you're, you're trying to permeate that into culture, into our fitness culture, that we're not looking for things to be perfect. We're look, just looking for a certain amount of acceptable adaptation. So, you know, I, I'm going to go off script a little bit as I always do, but, um, you, you know, we have a lot of new listeners and we're using the word compensation and we're using the word adaptation, right? And generally speaking, when people hear compensation, they think negative. And when oh. they hear adaptation, they generally mm -hmm. think positive, right? So, mm -hmm. um, because you can have an adaptation through a compensation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of people don't understand that, right? Because it, it really, what it is, is an adaptation is you're doing something and because you're doing something over and over again, your body is responding to that, that load or that stimulus, right? Um, so there's our adaptation. And generally we're looking for 
for positive adaptations. And I think one of the things people don't think of is a negative adaptation is often viewed as a compensation as well. So I think the language around compensation and adaptation can be a bit confusing for some people because mm -hmm. they hear compensation and they're like, what, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know how it is like, yes, I'm compensating. Like, am I going to, am I going to die? Am I going to burst into flames because I'm compensating? <laughs> because, you know, I think people don't understand the difference. So, and, and listen, you're a lot smarter than I'll ever be. So can you kind of just talk about the idea of compensation and adaptation for in layman's terms for people? Because I think that'll clear mm -hmm. up a lot of things for people when it comes to movement and function. Oh, I, I love talking about this because the word compensation to me means strategy. It's just a strategy around a problem. And so, uh, like, for instance, if, if you were to sprain your ankle, you sprain your ankle, you're going to have to create a compensatory strategy in this acute and subacute situation if you plan to ambulate, if you plan to weight bear, because there's an inflammatory cascade, there's pain, there's heat that that is needed to heal a tissue that has a pretty slow healing time compared to some of the other surrounding tissue, right? This is the most sprained ligament of the body. It's in your foot. It's called ATFL, but everybody's had an ankle sprain probably at some point, or at least rolled their ankle. So you're going to develop a compensatory strategy around that. That's hopefully this temporarily really effective thing, right? And in some people that have a poor compensatory strategy, what they'll do is a poor adaptation where they will excessively create joint mobility restrictions around an area long after the healing process has been complete. So the difference between a compensation and a poor compensation is one that no longer serves the patient for proper execution and movement or healing of injury. And so I don't use the word compensation without adding the word poor to it. And I agree with you, Mike, a, a big part of my practice is telling people, they're like, well, I'm such an idiot. I'm so broken. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. That, that, you're, talk, you're talking really naughty about somebody that I, I'm learning to like here. Um, it's, it's really not fair. The, the, the compensations of the body are beautiful. Our ability to adapt, to be resilient and change. It's when the compensation doesn't work for us anymore and creates these weird loading patterns that may no longer serve us, that is when the compensation becomes poor and why we have to intervene and actually rehabilitate and change the situation. Love it. Eric, there's a clip for you right there, buddy. I was, that was just setting up a beautiful clip for the, for, for the interweb. So no, thank you for that. So I already have a timestamp, um, Perry. <laughs> um, so, you know, going back to talking about sort of isolation and, and um, you know, dealing with injuries and, and talking about sort of the, you know, the global, uh, global approach and, and obviously the isolated approach. But when you're considering all of, you know, everything that happens when it comes to movement, all the layers of bone, joints, cartilage, soft tissue, muscle, muscles, fascia, can we truly isolate anything when it comes to function or is, do we have to start looking at things slightly differently? Well, I'll tell you as a gross anatomist, one of my biggest pet peeves is everyone's focus on fascia. It drives me crazy. Because I don't know, it takes me what, like maybe a hundred hours to dissect a cadaver patient, right? From head to toe. Uh, and when I'm dissecting, the one thing I think about it is how hard it is to create separation. And my job as a prosector for my university <laughs> is to attempt to create separation, to elucidate structures, but one of the, this, the things I appreciate the most and what I'm fascinated with is that it takes me 100 hours of doing nothing else but dissecting to create separation. So why are we attempting to create separation between these parts as if the nerves and the fascia and the blood and the muscles and the ligaments and the tendons and the bones and skin are these different things? They are <laughs> supplied with feedback to the same nervous system. If I take an area around your hand, the bones, the tendons, the muscles, the ligaments, the fascia, they're all giving feedback through the same neural system. Your brain has no idea what your skin is relative to your fascia, relative to your bone, right? It only knows input, proprioceptive input or pain input. It knows sensory input. And I think if your brain won't differentiate body parts, then why do we as clinicians why do, or, and, and trainers and, and therapists, why do we try to compartmentalize anatomy? As a holistic practitioner, 
I think that this has gone too specialized. We have our fascia specialists and our nurse specialists. I mean, it happens in medicine. It happens in fitness. Like, I think that I, my biggest passion in teaching anatomy is teaching people that all the pieces matter. There's not one piece that matters more than the other piece. And so when we're teaching anatomy with macular section, we're, we're trying to get people out of that box of just like, hey, I'm the fascia person or the muscle person or the bone person. Like, no, you are the, these things move and flow together as a unit and, and they're, they're independent, they're, they're independent features as far as I can dissect it out for you if you want. But it, it takes me hours and hours and hours to do that. And, and I don't think it's necessary to do it in a, in a movement strategy perspective. And, so I don't. And I, I will say that the, your class does a very good job of that. And one of the eye-opening things that, that I remember as I took my staff when I had my facility um, to the bodies exhibit in, in when they had it in lower Manhattan. And when you actually see what a quad looks like and how it attaches at the hip. And it's, it didn't look like the anatomy flashcards I had in school. Um, <laughs> and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, where does the rectus femoris end? And then the next one begin. And, and it's just mm -hmm. this, this web of all these things intertwining that it, it's really kind of wild and fascinating and elegant. And so next question is, so how much does our individual anthropometry, such as, you know, Mike talks about in our course, like uh, limb and torso lengths and how that can relate to, as an example, in the squat is just one, you know, one movement pattern, but how much does that impact what a muscle does and how, if I'm doing the same bicep curl next to you, we may be getting two totally different things happening because of limb lengths and lever lengths and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets really, really complicated. Um, this is the, I think a, the really tough stuff of, of analysis and trying to, to optimize a patient is who moves first and who moves most and where does the person have, you know, movement strategy caveats, right? So like, for instance, uh, I have a patient with knee pain that I, I was seeing yesterday in New York. And uh, she said, every time I walk up the stairs, I feel this pain on the medial aspect of my knee, right? And so I had her put her foot on the stair and, and show me how to do it. And then I asked her to just push her heel backwards and then redo the step. And she's like, why doesn't that hurt? And I said, because you changed everything. Every little piece of pressure changes everything. And so we have to find a way for you to experience your life without hitting extra pain receptors. And, and some of that, sometimes it's really easy like that. You, you, you get the ability to lengthen a lever arm, right? By pushing through her heel more, she was able to push her femur more posteriorly and wasn't able to take the stress across the knee and hit pain receptors. Sometimes it's super easy and, and I get lucky. And other times it's, it's, it's more complicated. Like this person has an actual mobility restriction in a joint due to advanced osteoarthritic changes and me pushing through their heel won't do jack squat for them because now they can't increase the lever arm. I, I think that the, the great challenge is trying to meet people where they're at and take them where they're not. And that's our ID motto, right? We're, we're trying to, if you take someone in a squat and, and you can't get them to descend, that's why, you know, you see people like Bray Cook put something underneath their heels. Like, can, can they learn how to, can they teach their brain how to do something with a different strategy and increase this lever arm length here? And this, you know, change the way that the, the motor control happens at this point here. It's just a, it's a really, really complicated system. But I think that if you simplify it for people into how do you move and how can we make it easier? It's a lot easier than start talking about, you know, I don't, I don't like to get super, super, super technical with my patients, which probably surprises most people. They're probably like, Oh God, this is an anatomist. You probably, you know, it breaks down every single part. And I'm like, that's not exactly true. Like when it comes to, to movement, I want it to be simpler. I, I, I want it to be load shared. I want everyone to share the load. So I don't talk in lever arms. I don't really talk in, in a lot of that stuff. Uh, I, I mostly talk about, can we share the load with multiple parts so there's not as much overload? And I think we don't talk about that enough. And when I say load share to most people, they're just like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, well, like, I feel like that is the easiest thing for my patients to understand. They're like, I, I need you to put as much pressure in your big toe as you do in your pinky toe. So when you're in the squat, can you find this happy place? where your body feels really stable and can you spread the load across something in order to descend? 
and they'll they'll talk about how magic it, it feels, how they're able to get away from pain or increase their depth or, or or change the way their their eye positioning is, all from these these little micro adjustments. And and it, and it really comes down to me the, the way I educate people through movement is load share. Hey everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show, and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So now I have a bunch of questions that I want to talk about kind of the magical uh, uh, adaptability of our anatomy. And uh, I love, um, you know, some of Katie Bowman's work talking about how this isn't even exclusive to human beings and even talking about how um, dolphins will lose, I I forget the name of which fin that they'll actually lose if they're kept in captivity because they don't need it any longer. Um, And these are just anatomical adaptations that we have based on our environment. Um, and that's something that I, that I try to also in terms of education for clients to say, okay, well, don't blame your, your mother, your grandmother for your bunions. There's something called Wolf's <laughs> yes. law and where we lay down more bone in, in, in response to certain stressors and you keep collapsing that foot in or wearing that tight shoe or both. And it's just a, your body's response to that by laying down extra bone to actually protect you because you're not smart enough to protect yourself. Right. I so, think it's so beautiful. I think that anatomic adaptation, I mean, I'm obsessed with this, obviously, right? Because every cadaver that I see, every patient that I see is different. And and I get this I get this really awesome opportunity to see someone posthumously and watch how their life adapted. Right. And I think one of the most fascinating things is that my my students ask me, like, how did they die? Like what was on their death certificate? Well, the same thing as all of this cardiorespiratory failure. <laughs> like what is, be more interested in what this person lived with and how they adapted their anatomy to it. Like we're losing certain muscles, right? We're losing plantaris in our lower leg. We're losing palmaris longus in our forearm because we're adapting and no longer need these things. This is really cool stuff. Like it's gonna take us, you know, thousands and thousands of years to no longer need it. But it's absolutely true. What Katie Bowman says is true. She's an incredible biomechanist. And, and I think that we underestimate <laughs> the, the power of our ability to adapt and it not be pathological. Like when I see a bunny, it's only pathological if it bothers my patient. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like that, that is a supination strategy for a pronation problem. You, your body cannot, you know, properly move it through space. It's not because your mom handed you bad genes. And it's, it's not a problem until it's a problem. And, and that, that gets back to what Mike was talking about with compensation versus poor compensation. So I have another tricky question off of that. How much is governed of that by the nervous system and how much is attributable to load and stress? I think that we don't really know the true answers to that yet. I, I don't think that there, we need to think of those as separate entities. Okay. So if I proprioceptively have a program that, that encourages me to move a certain way, then I'm going to probably load a certain way. So proprioception does guide our ability to load, to move, to stabilize. And then we have reactive forces from the way that we move and stabilize. So our nervous system is going to change based upon that, that load or, or that placement. So I think it's a constantly learning system. And I, I, I don't like to think of things as too bookmarked as one causes the other. And it's, it, I, I think it's a lot more mutually enhancing than we like to give it credit for. Now I have one more before I pass it back to you, Mike. So there's certain things and I try to explain <laughs> to clients. Um, there's certain adap- adaptations or, or, or changes that happen. Maybe it's through injury or, or, or so forth that they'll go back. You know, your bone will grow back. It'll sometimes grow back stronger, right? In, in response to that. Um, and then there's certain things like the ligamentous system, right? That once you stretch or, or, or uh, strain that ligament. And now it's, it's got that plastic of property. I explained to him, it's like, honey, if you pop, you know, the best way I learned it is like you pop that can out of the six pack, it's never going back in snug again. And so now you're the only thing that's going to hold that joint together is muscular support. So you now just increased in much greater demand for stability and motor control around that joint. And so we're not going to fix that by stretching because stretching may actually make you worse. So kind of talk about the parts that, that, that can, come back just as good as they were before and the parts that don't come back? Well, that's highly dependent on blood. And this is why I I don't pick favorites in anatomy, okay? But if I had to, if I was forced 
to pick a favorite, it would be blood. And it gets, gets so little credit. So the bone has this enormous ability to be able to regenerate, to heal fracture. A huge part of that is because of its capacity to hold blood. And ligaments and tendons are, you know, ligaments less so than tendons are, are highly avascular. So you're asking something that's not given a really good access to the immune system, to healing elements. Um, you're, you're asking, it has, it has access to innervation, but it doesn't have access to blood. So a ligament is not going to be able to be as resilient. And I agree with you with what you said about the dynamism of tissue has to improve when something else is, has been hit and ligaments are a tough one because, you know, they, they have poor blood supply, so they heal really slowly. Uh, but I think that you if you have a tendency to have quite a bit of blood and blood around you, then your capacity to heal is going to increase because of your access to the lymphatic and immune systems. So there you are. That's why they say movement is medicine, right? Yes. So lotion. <laughs> that's it. So let's, let's, you know, over the last, I would say decade breathing has been, you know, a hot topic, right. And, and it started with, you know, doing a little bit of diaphragmatic breathing and then, you know, PRI came in and, and made, uh, you know, uh, up some uh, pretty big impacts on the industry. Um, but let's talk about breathing in, in general. And um, can you give us some insight on how our individual anatomy is going to impact uh, breathing in general? I guess I'm pretty excited to be alive at this time when when breathing is making a comeback. Uh, kind of like Eric said, so things like they wax and wane. If you're in practice long enough, you see things come into style and, and breathing is in style. I remember watching this video, like, a, like an infomercial when I was a kid about this woman who was doing breathing. Uh, do you guys remember this? If you Google like 80s commercial uh, breathing lady, she was doing this breathing. Everyone thought she was crazy. And then and like, maybe so, but now it's, it's in fashion again, 40 years later. Um, I think that the, the root of the majority of what we do to, to stay alive is breathing. So it makes total sense that life and death begins and ends with breath. So it seems like a crazy thing not to focus on to, and then when you get back to the anatomy of breathing and the fact that building intra-abdominal pressure is a huge safety net for our center of mass and that your ability to be able to do proper gas exchange certainly does change your endurance, athletic output, uh, even anaerobic output, even though it's not dependent upon oxygen for delivery, it is for the, the movement of lactic acid out of the blood. So I think that the breathing focus as someone who teaches breathing courses, uh, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, but I also think that I, I really like what it does for people outside of human movement. I, I think that we underestimate how much poorly adapted emotional, physical uh, job stress affects our ability to move the muscles. Like uh, if you look at Leon Chateau's chart on anxiety, right? And the fact that anxious people tend to overbreathe. People that overbreathe blow up too much CO2. They become a little bit acidotic. So your body will excrete extra calcium, right? When you excrete extra calcium through the kidneys, you end up with sensory disturbances, tiredness, uh, muscle cramping, muscles can't recover as well. So if, if you're not properly focusing on your breathing, it absolutely does affect your training. If not directly, then indirectly through the the overbreathing cycle and then it becomes a systemic problem breathing is a systemic problem and then it also is something that we use for biomechanics to improve our our output so i think if you don't focus on breathing in someone's training it becomes a, a, a really big problem especially if their if their life is more anxious than they like to admit and a lot of my patients don't even know they have anxiety i'll watch them breathe and their respiration rate is like 18 to 20 or something. And I'm like, okay, if the average is 12, that's a little high. And then maybe the reason why you hurt, maybe the reasons why you can't recover from your workouts is because you haven't focused enough on your breathing. So to, to connect the worlds, yeah. um, you know, something we do, we talk about when we talk about shoulder mobility, 
And, and I explain, you know, the impact of breathing on that and, and how it could inf- affect shoulders, especially working with baseball players, a lot of shoulder stuff. And then I explain to them the impact of breathing and I'll have people take a deep breath and kind of feel their belly move and feel the diaphragm if you're doing it right. And then I said, okay, put your, put your fingertips and kind of wrap them around your clavicles and then take a, a stress breath, like a bear just walked in the room. And you take that mouth stress breath and you feel those muscles just kind of grab a stranglehold of your fingertips. And then those are your scalenes. Those are accessory respiratory muscles. And those kind of help pull up on your aponeurosis of your lungs when you need to stress breathe, which is good if there's a bear in the room, but there's not a bear in the room right now. And you're doing that to your point, 18 times a minute times 60 minutes in an hour times, you know, 15,000 times a day. Now imagine if you did that to any muscle, do 15,000 bicep curls, what's your bicep going to feel like at the end of the day. Now that's going to pull your head forward more, which is going to close down the airway more, which is going to lead to more rapid, you know, short, shallow breathing. And now all of a sudden you can't, you can't lift your arm overhead without pain. All the stretching, foam rolling manipulation in the world is not going to make that go away unless we change your breathing. Right. Uh, Boom goes the dynamite. You you gave a, I mean, if you were working with anyone that uses their arms in any kind of sport, you don't mess with the scalenes. The scalenes attach to the first rib. The first rib is part of the sternoclavicular joint. Sternoclavicular joint is the one attachment, the bony attachment your entire upper extremity has to the middle of you, the axial skeleton. The, the last thing you want to do is be breathing there and create tightness around something you're trying to get mobile. This is like this, it, it's it's crazy not to focus on breathing, in my opinion, with with any kind of athlete, especially you know, any kind of person that, that uses their arms. So go ahead, Mike. I know you're trying to jump in with something there. No, I was just uh, you know, I was just kind of thinking again that sort of the trends on on basic breathing. And um I love the fact that we're being it's being incorporated, but I just like any any type of new thing, we have people that they go down the rabbit hole and they feel like, mm-hmm. okay, like, and I've seen, I've seen, I've heard stories of like, like personal trainers that, you know, from a scope of practice standpoint, you know, they shouldn't be telling people certain things, but you have dysfunctional breathing and you, and you have this, they're like, they're diagnosing things because people have, you know, some, maybe some compromised breathing. And I think like anything, we need to know our role and, and know when things are important. But if it's kind of like one of those things, it's if, if we only tell people what they're doing wrong or what's broken. They're just, all they're going to do is they're going to focus on that. And because they're focusing on this one thing, they're missing so many other things. And I think just like anything, there needs to be a time and a place to, to have that conversation and to do it in a way and to deliver the message that, Hey, listen, like this, this can be, this can be changed. This can, you know, this is not a big deal. And I just think we, we got to stop telling people that they're fragile and they're broken. We talk about this in our Thank course you. all the time, Eric, but I just, I feel like the, the, the whole breathing thing, it's like, you have dysfunctional breathing. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, there is dysfunctional breathing, but telling someone that they have dysfunctional breathing, but not knowing a damn thing to do about it. It's just, it's just dumb. And we're not doing anything good for our, our patients when we do this. I agree with you. And I am (laughs) probably obviously a very big cheerleader to my patients, my clients, my students. Um, The feedback that I typically get is that I didn't know I was going to laugh so much at the appointment or I didn't know I was going to have so much fun. And I think that we forget to make things fun and like the, like kids, who's more adaptable than a kid. Okay. Who's more adaptable than a child. They're adaptable and they're resilient and they're building adaptation and resiliency. So make it okay to be a little dysfunctional BFD. You're a little, okay, fine. You know, not every breath I take is perfect either, but let's see what we can do to, to see how much better you can get at something and, and, and make it just another skill like anything else. H- how good can you get it? And like, I, I make it competitive. I'm like, inhale for five, exhale for 10. See if you can get it for to six to 12. See if you can get it to seven to 14. Don't talk about dysfunction, get competitive. <laughs> People are naturally competitive. It's a, it's a hardwire in our brain that is evolutionary hardwire. Like just have some fun and, and, and make as many of you as you can come from, from, from the lateral part of your rib cage. Let's have some fun with this. And rather than, um, and I'm with you, Mike, I, I, I loathe the fragility that we like to, that's a terrible business model, folks. Like all it is, is going to make people feel like crap. And then the kind of clients you're going to get are also going to be the ones that are in the doldrums and and they may not be able to be very easily pulled out of it because people have just been perpetuating over and over what these people cannot do. And 
the medical community can be really bad at that too. Like my patient yesterday was told not to lift weights anymore after his back injury. And I'm just like, you're going to lift in life, man. You're going to pick up your laundry basket. You're going to lift up your groceries. Lifting things is going to be a part of life. Let's find a way for you to do it safely in a way that doesn't hurt you. Like let, let's have some fun with this. And, and, and people are not fragile just because they may be temporarily vulnerable. And I, I really think that people need to empower their clients and patients. Let's see how much you can do. What, what, what can you see yourself do? Instead of this uh, this perpetuation of dysfunctional fragility. I love it. And I love the fact you brought up the word resiliency. And, and Mike, you're talking about being in our lane. And I think one of the things I was fortunate to learn early on as well is I did two levels of Paul Check's internship, you know, a million years ago when he was first kind of uh, uh, coming to popularity. And one of the things that he said is our job is to be the Robin Hood for uh, orthopedic surgeons. And my job is to keep them out of your office, quite frankly, you know, Kathy. And and uh, in order to do that, it's building resiliency. And and so I have a couple questions with that. One of the things you talked about was blood supply. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking automatically, all right, if if I can get someone more aerobically fit, uh, that rising tide is going to kind of raise, you know, make all boats rise as well. So um, tell me about where you see less people uh, getting injured or at least recovering more quickly because of that level of fitness. Oh, I think that, uh, you know, being a former owner of a kettlebell gym, nobody got a pass. Everybody had to do some type of aerobic conditioning, right? So our programs were built to where people would lift weights based upon an FMS score, right? And, and then at the end, they would have to do some type of strength conditioning, some type of metabolic conditioning. I think it is crucial. I, I, I know I don't have to convince athletes to do it, obviously, but for a lot of my weekend warriors, like if I ask them to do cardio, it's like, wah, wah, wah. Uh, I think that you can really help expedite the recovery of of muscle tissue by by including aerobic activity it's 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 right there in the research it's undeniable um and i think that we should never underestimate the fact that aerobic activity is really making the cardiovascular system work it's moving blood it's decreasing stasis it's improving our ability to oxygenate tissue and it doesn't have to be that long and it can be intense or it can be moderate. And there's so many fun, it's a way to really have fun with, with cardiovascular fitness. Uh, I, you know, from a very personal place, I, I'm concerned about this for myself because uh, my father died of myocardial infarction during the pandemic. And I was always very worried about his cardiovascular fitness. I saw how it went down so much after his first heart attack and you just don't want to mess with your ticker. You, you need to do, you need to move your blood and and on that vein of, you know, caring for the blood, it's not just aerobic activity, but, you know, improving the quality of what's floating around in your blood, you know, having those hard conversations of, you know, if you're not comfortable looking at the blood work, getting someone that really, really looks at the blood work. And, and that's a big part of my clinical practice is looking at people's blood work and, and asking them questions about it, asking them to get certain tests run, because we need to make sure that you are doing adequately for yourself in a systemic way to enhance your recovery if you're not doing that, then you, you really have to wonder like systemically how fit you are, uh, even if you are working out. So another question that's popping in my head as you're talking in as, as guys who now have a, a course that we teach program design, I think uh, something that's completely uh, misunderstood, underappreciated, um, and is the uh, quality of tissue tolerance, right? And so from the beginning of someone working out, getting up off the couch to understand they can't just go jump into a CrossFit or Orange Theory class and do what everybody else is doing who's been there six months. And then also the, the on the other end of the spectrum of like the magic of tissue tolerance, if you've built up enough for it, when we talk about, uh, you know, ideal baseball with, they talk about overuse injuries. I say, well, that's usually more of an under preparation thing than it is an overuse mm. that you can prepare your body to do a whole lot of magical things. I mean, I just finished mm -hmm. David Goggins book. The guy ran 240 miles on a torn ACL <laughs> and a tendon that was about to rupture. So <laughs> kind of talk a little bit about tissue tolerance and how we appreciate that. Cause I want to hear it from the, an anatomist point of view, who's seen it from the inside out, literally. Yeah, I think that people always ask me, like, when you're dissecting the cadaver patient, do you would you be able to predict 
if the person had something like poor tissue tolerance or would you be able to see a muscle rupture or would you be able to see grade two strain you know versus a, a grade one and gross anatomically the answer is no i think that i think we are vastly incredible healing beings i think that even in my work as a clinician i have to remind my patients constantly at how amazingly adaptive their bodies are but i think they have to make smart choices like the ease in adaptation happens because your body is given little tiny bits of something that they can adapt to you guys folks have hopefully your listeners have seen the movie princess bride where he poisons the guy because he gives something all at once but he himself takes it over time and he develops adaptation right uh i think that that's you know, the, the beauty of of improving tissue tolerance is this you know improving somebody over time if mike's trying to train somebody to to do a getup he doesn't hand him a beast he doesn't hand him a 48 right away he puts them through the motions of how to do it accurately with load chair and then he progressively loads it uh, i think that th these the, the the progressions are something i use a lot in my clinical practice with patients that that language of progression a b c d like let's start you off with progression A, then we're going to add in B if you have good tissue tolerance, good adaptation to it, good resiliency. Then we'll move on to C and D, and and um, and building you know fitness programs and rehab programs around that idea is really really highly valuable. But I can tell you from an anatomic standpoint on the cadaver patient, like uh, I, I recently was dissecting this gorgeous cadaver patient. He was seventy seven years old and more mesomorphic and had more very clean muscle tissue than than bodies that I've dissected in their 40s. And I was like, what did this guy do? Like, what did he do so right? Right. And we found out that he died of blunt trauma. He was most likely, you know, hit by a car or something like that, like blunt force trauma. But, you know, that's poor. That's an example of poor adaptation, like your inability to be able to resist this all at once. But he had spent a whole life of having really, really good tissue tolerance. Like, and I don't know what, what, he, what he was doing, but I know whatever killed him was all at once. And we have to be really careful about overloading our system when it hasn't had an opportunity to, to adapt. Fascinating stuff as everything has been that we've covered in the last hour or so, and I can't believe it's already gone by. So <laughs> uh, before we, before we wrap up, Mike, any final thoughts you want to jump in with? No, I uh, I just wish I could pick her brain for like the next uh, I don't know a couple of years, and I'd probably learn learn a lot more. But no, uh, Doc, thank you so much for for sharing, and and thank you much uh, thank you so much for your guidance, and and uh, just it was it was such an awesome conversation. Well, you're both such a, a memorable thing to me, Eric. For you, I think I went to your gym to take one of my initial courses with NKT, and uh, for Mike, I I can never forget what you did for me at strong first. You probably don't even remember, but uh, I, I almost flunked my strong first two exam, but Mike took me to the side and, and helped me with my windmill. And I, I think you're just both incredible people and incredible at what you do. And, and I hope your listeners uh, fully appreciate what you bring to the table as far as, you know, you know, progressive thoughts in our field. Greatly appreciate it. And Mike Perry, once again, to the rescue, you're like a superhero. <laughs> Perry. No, usually, yes. usually I'm the one, I'm usually the one going help. <laughs> He's very humble, right. very humble guy. <laughs> so, so before we wrap up, I, I want to know, Kathy, what do you have coming up in 2023? What are some exciting projects you're working on? Oh, wow. Uh, next week I fly to Istanbul, Turkey. It's my first time teaching there. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm teaching my uh, temporal mandibular joint course and NKT over there. And uh, I'm flying to various places uh, to teach, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, and of course, I'm very excited to to do some prosection coming up at the medical school and, and dive even more into the cadaver patient so I can share knowledge with anyone who will listen. <laughs> uh, and so that my husband doesn't have to hear all of it. And uh, I'm, I'm super excited just to, to be a great clinician and, and to teach these amazing courses. Uh, if you folks want to check out some of the courses that we have to offer, I'm sure that you'll provide them with the websites that are appropriate. And if, of course, I'd love to get my email. If you have any questions about anything we talked about today, uh, please feel free to give my, my email out. It's drkathydooley at gmail.com. It'll never change. So feel free to ask me any questions. I'd love to answer them. We will certainly do that. And we appreciate you and appreciate all that you're doing. Um, and we want to thank you, uh, our listeners, for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast.
Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.